Welcome to the latest instalment of the Evolution Exchange podcast, and I'm joined by a very experienced panel of tech leaders to discuss an intriguing topic, anything product. But before we delve deeper into this topic, let's work our way around the room and make some general introductions. So, Javit? Yeah, this is Javit. I am originally from Turkey, but I have been living in Denmark for the last 15 years. So I have a software engineering background. I work as a software engineer in Microsoft for seven and a half years. And after that, I took a business degree and then switched to the dark side of product management. And since then, I have been working as a product manager in international companies. And recently, I joined Maersk almost 10 months ago and helping them to build digital solutions for their business. My hobbies outside of work doesn't exist. I have two small children, so basically they are my hobbies and it's always between work and the family and the home, so. Great stuff, thank you. And moving on to Mirko. Yes, I'm uh, Mirko Mikic and uh, currently I work as a product manager in Pineo uh, for the product called KYC. And um, my background is in uh, business and information systems and Started my career actually in Maersk, went uh, over to some consulting and then went into the tech world of uh, tech startups and uh, for the past couple of years. My hobbies, I like to play football, like to travel a lot, so I pride myself on that I haven't spent a single vacation day in Denmark since 2014. And since you get six weeks in Denmark, it's quite a lot of, of time outside the country. Nice. Nice. And moving on to Lona. Yeah. So yeah, my name is Lona, and I uh, I work also at Pineo, uh, same as Mirko, um, and yeah, also as a product manager. And I've worked there for for two and a half years now. I actually started my my career with the project management in the music industry, so doing different kinds of uh, events and setting up uh, panel debates and and stuff like that. And then I too, took a degree in, in IT, and then at some point it occurred to me I should do IT project management. And that's how I, I got into that and then started, you know, when you do project management, you start seeing, okay, we delivered something, didn't do what we expected it to do. So maybe uh, it's more fun to do product management and, and make sure that things also create value. Um, outside of uh, of work, I, I play music, so I... I still do that and and enjoy that. Thank you, Honor. And last but no means least, Fabio. Yeah. So my name is Fabio. I'm originally from Brazil. Been here in Denmark for maybe nine or ten years. And I started out as a as a data analyst at Google back home in Brazil. Moved here, worked for a bunch of startups. Then I started doing product management at at one of them. And recently, like almost two years ago, I joined Maersk, also like Javid, to to develop some of their internal systems. And but on my free time, I also have a kid, and it becomes more about splitting time between work and and the family. But whenever I have some extra time, I like to play games on my computer, and I also like to to play around with open source software and self-host some of the the tools that I use. Great stuff, thank you. Hi everyone, 
This is Chris Bennett here, a Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Yeah, really interesting dynamic we have to this one. I mean, two people over from Maersk, two people from Penio, and it should make for a great take. I think it's intriguing to hear that you all come from different backgrounds into product management and that's something that we're going to discuss today. So the title is rather vague and ambiguous in anything product and the purpose being that we can take multiple directions. So prior to the call I asked each participant to put forward something they'd like to post to the group. So Javit, I understand that you had a question. What was that one? Yes, I have one and I believe this is one of the foundational aspects of the work we do every day. There are so many things to do with the limited resources we have. So I would like to hear from the other PMs about how they deal with the prioritization in product management and if they have any tips and tricks that they can share. And yeah. let's hear from someone outside of Maersk. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I can take that one. Um, I think really prioritization, it's really uh, the most difficult thing about uh, product management. But thinking about it, I think that could apply to any, any question. <laughs> there are a lot of really uh, difficult things. Um, but for prioritization, I think it's all about context. It's all about constantly gathering all the context you can, and that's context on uh, feedback from customers and on the market, on the competitors, on vision and strategy, and how how long does it take to implement a guidelines on UX and, and tech and what's the value of the company um, what data do you have that, that makes makes it a good idea to to implement um, this thing you are thinking about doing. So I really think it's, it's about being very open to collecting um, data from different sources and then being good at organizing it in some way so that it's actionable. And there are so many... Um, uh, so many different different ways to do that and different uh, frameworks you could choose to to use to do that and sometimes they're usable um but i think it's it's really about finding your own way to figure out how to organize that that mess and uh, uh, and understanding what's important and i think one of the most Im important things to take into uh, into account is the vision and strategy because you, you also need to tie things um, back up to what exactly is it that you want to do, which also makes prioritization uh, easier. But there's, you can never be sure about what you do. Everything is a bit, so it's just about having enough uh, enough data to make it um, make it a bit where you someone can hold you accountable and you can you can say why you chose to bet bet on this. So it's it's really about having your um, your feedback sources organized and being able to to account for why you you do the things you do and then everything is a bit in the end so yeah maybe um maybe we should hear from someone from mask how how it's done there oh or maybe from pineo maybe miracle has something sure i can go 
Yeah, I mean, some of the same things about frameworks. I think the one thing I've learned that there's no formula. Everybody has the, their way of doing it. And I've seen many kinds of spreadsheets and people putting all kinds of columns in to try to come up with the, some magical formula to how you can get to this. And I, I just, at the end of the day, I've never seen any of them work 100%. They give you some guidance, but um, it ends up being a mix of data and a mix of um back to what you said about strategy and how it ties into that and then there's a little bit of gut feeling too in it and uh, one thing that I found being really helpful in, in the last couple of years working in tech is to, and could be other industries too but to have some principles uh, which makes it really easy uh, not really easy but it makes it easier to make decisions faster uh, one could, for example, that we have in the team right now could be integrity over time to market. So because customers really depend on our product and they have to uh, show documentation to authorities that they have done processes in a certain way, for us, integrity means a lot over uh, going and, and just launching uh, to the market with all kinds of new features. Uh, so that's one example. And then lastly, I think... Uh, one thing that we strive to do a lot of times is, is hit synergies. So whatever we want to do with our product, there's also synergy in what is being asked uh, by our customers. So a lot of win-win situations, the more of those you can create, the better. So yeah, that was a little bit of uh, different aspects that, uh, that I consider when talking priorities. But again, back to my main point, I don't think there's one set formula. I think that everyone uh, has certain ways of doing it and some of it will be data, some of it will be uh, a little bit of gut feeling at the end of the day. Uh, but, but Fabio, what do you think about the topic? Yeah, I think there is, there is the pretty answer, which is what we would always want to do, which is we always have a set criteria by which we prioritize and so on. But that, that fails all the time because whenever you're you're actually making these decisions like to decide on one thing you have some data about something but not other data about something else so if you were to use like a framework and and in the end you you really have this to navigate this ambiguity with the I think echoing a lot of what Lon said about having a vision and, and thinking about strategy and in the end like you have, you have a lot of uh, decisions to make, not all the information, and thus you have to use heuristics, or you need to figure out what could be more important from a, from from the user perspective, and, and even from a development perspective. Sometimes you you do have to make decisions based on on the cost of them, and not necessarily on the value of them. And and so I believe that you always have to balance this, and in each decision you need to decide. What is the minimum that you you require to make that prioritization? So, yeah, sounds a bit generic though. What do you think, Javid? But I am actually aligned with all of you guys. So basically, I also believe that actually the product strategy and the principles are how I would like to prioritize things. And that's how what I used in the past. And that's what I'm trying to use also in my daily work at Maersk. And principles helps you make 
also daily decisions easier, right? Because we do trade-offs every day, you know, with the development team, with the UX team. Like we had also similar principles, like you mentioned, Mirko, like we had a principle published in our company, in one of the companies that I worked, and security was on top, you know, whenever there was a security issue, a bug or request, it was always the highest priority. So that was basically one of our principles that we said everything is less important than the security and this is our principle. And it can be other principles, like for example, it also aligns with the company strategy because I remember we were actually targeting bigger accounts in my one of my previous jobs and we said that, you know, we don't want to have smaller accounts, which is basically paying, let's say, less than some certain amount. And we said that, you know, if there are any requests or any problems or anything that comes from their direction, we will say no to them because we are even willing to lose that customers and that account. So that was also a kind of principle. And if you publish this one to organization and if you get alignment from the broader aspect, it makes your life easier because I remember that I have met with one of the tech support colleagues in one of my previous company and he was like, oh, we got a request, but they were not really meeting with your product principle. So I didn't even create a bug for you. You know, they do their decisions by themselves instead of, you know, creating a bug or Jira ticket for you. So that's why I believe instead of a magical formula that you put some numbers that you might not even have. I always trust that, you know, what is our vision, strategy, and the principles going forward. It might change. It changes quite often, but at least you have a foundational guideline to help you decide your next move. Just a quick follow-up question off the back of that. I think some great points raised. I think, Lona, you made a great point in terms of the, the multifaceted nature of product management, and it's about organizing all of these factors in order to make them actionable. Merkel, I Touching on one thing that you you pulled up there, sometimes you have to go with your gut feeling. I think from a previous podcast that I'd done, it was about whether product management is an art or a science, and that entailed a you know a good discussion on the back of it. And I think just a follow up question: which side would you take on that? Because it does need that human element. So just touching on what you said with it being a gut feeling. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh. I would say it's a mix, which a lot of times, again, is the answer that many will give on many things. But uh, again, talking about the data, you can have some data, but having 16 different aspects where you have to come up with a number and then for you to come up with the, the estimated importance of this thing, I think it's, it's a big aspiration and I don't think it works in practice. So I think some data and, and some of it is... Uh, basically what happens in our brain, calculating the rest on the fly. Yeah. Interesting take. It was just something I, I wish to question further. What's anybody else's take on that? I echo that. Like, I think the there is a lot that happens in our brain that we don't fully understand or articulate, but uh, the, the gut feeling is what will materialize that. So for example, if you see multiple data points, you might not know that that how that shaped your perception of the problem, but something like spider sense will, will tell you that this is the way you should go. And in many cases, it is because your brain aggregated a lot of this information and, and gave you this hunch. So I, I vouch for that too. And straight off the back of that, in terms of aggregating 
the data points and accumulating that. And on Merco, the question that you wish to post to the, the group is fairly related to that. Yes. Um, so my question to the group is, how do you know that you have done enough discovery on a problem? Basically, research, as a lot of us would call it, when you look into something new. So what do you think about that, Fabio? Well, I think uh, you, you need to do, you should never stop researching the problem because you always find new things. But I think one milestone that you have enough that you can at least roll out something or experiment something is when you can build a prototype of, of a hypothesis that you might have that came up during this discovery. So it's not the exact answer to your question because I don't think you, you should stop discovery, but there is a point where you have enough discovery that you can move on to the next step, I think. Uh, what do you think, Lon? Yeah, I um, I completely agree. I think you should never stop doing a discovery. It's continuous. It happens all the time and it should happen all the time. Um, but the problem with saying that is that you'll never get anywhere if you just keep doing discovery. You need to make decisions. And if you can make, um, if you can make 10 decisions in a week and make sure that most of them are good, then that's better than making 10 decisions in a month. So it's really about taking the first step, I think, when it comes to uh, to discovery, having enough um, enough data sources, enough um, yeah, enough data on on the, the problem, knowing what it is you you want to solve, uh, gathering some information, and then when you have enough to take the first step into like a prototype or figuring out um, how you can validate your your problem somehow, um, then then that's enough for the first step and then it's continuous and uh, goes on and on and on. So, but then you have the problem that people start asking, so when is it done? And then you have to go about saying how it's never done and, uh, and it gets, it gets a difficult, um, diff difficult argument to make, but, but I, I, it is continuous and it's, and it should be continuous and we should be open to, to learn all the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, Javid, you have uh, some some other other opinions about it, or something that that hasn't been said already. It's mostly said, and I'm really taking hard about it. Actually, you know, basically, the sweet spot that you move on from discovery to the next phase is basically when you decrease your risk level significantly, and you have validated your hypothesis that you set to verify. Right? This is the moment that you say. Okay, I can move on, but I am ready to change my course under the light of the new evidence or new learnings. So that's the moment that you should be always prepare yourself to move and change your direction, because otherwise you will always stay in the analysis mode, right? It's something called analysis paralysis. You just continue analyzing, analyzing. And as you mentioned, Lone, I also like to take fast decisions, you know, basically that's my goal. You know, we make fast decisions. We are not basically sending a nuke from one continent to another. You know, even if you do, you can cancel it. But I think there is something called, you know, the cost of your decision. You know, how fast you can make decision 
and they should not be that high. You should not basically take too much time to make a decision. Otherwise, you just stuck where you are. So the moment that you decrease your risk, it's time to move on and then continue with the next, next phrases. So that would be my suggestion and way I would forward it. Mirko, I know this is a question that you posed to the group, but what's your take on it? Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything that's been said. And uh, both in terms of the you can't discover everything at once and it's continuous. Because uh, that's really important that you can't just go into this as a let's discover and then uh, we have discovered everything and then we start building it. It's a continuous thing back and forth. And that, and I believe that it's uh, basically a, a hypothesis testing all the way until you have something widely adopted by your customers. And I think that's really important to also highlight to both uh, the stakeholders in the organization and also customers for every step you do, uh, whatever it is, is this is a, now we're doing a beta, now we're doing a pilot, or whatever it might be, or the words you want to use, but keep it uh, stating the fact that this is still a test. And you can do that also when you, when you, also, um, deliver it to production, you can start with one market. And even though people might think that you're already delivering to the market, it's still a test. Yeah, I think it's an intriguing insight. And I think the way in which you all agree on it certainly brings it home that that's such an important focus and it's something that's on an ongoing process. I mean, from somebody who doesn't do product management and for maybe aspiring product managers or people who haven't been in their role very long. Would you say that the, the proportion of time that you allocate to discovery when those once a product has been launched or at different stages of the life cycle, or is it something that's a continuous state? I'll leave that one open to the floor. It's a continuous state, right? Because basically you continue doing your discovery to gather the feedback. You know, let's say that you release something and now you start actually doing a discovery about how it has received, you know, and then you do different things. So. There are different sections of discovery that needs to happen, starting from the problem discovery, then the solution discovery, and then, the, of course, then the iteration discovery, right? I mean, this is basically an ongoing effort. And one thing that we all are aware, I'm sure, is that as product managers, our decisions are basically questioned every day, you know, from management to stakeholders to developers. We just need to basically good at doing our homework and coming with the justification. And this out of the job. That's how I see it. It's never ending story, which makes it also beautiful. Certainly it's definitely a challenge within product management. And I know that Lona, you pose the challenge that you see as an imminent, an imminent one within product management. So if you'd like to pose that, that question. Yes. So, um, one thing that they uh, has started to, uh, to to get my attention quite a lot and that I've been looking into and, and find super interesting is uh, product-led growth and how to make that work. Um, and the reason why it's so interesting is, is because if you can get that whole system working with product-led growth, uh, you can do, um, instead of doing a, like a linear growth where it's, it, uh, it costs, it's expensive to get, get the new customers in. Um, when you can start creating loops in the product so that the uh, users invite other users and they, uh, um, and they, yeah, become customers. Um, 
then I think it's that's it's just really interesting how you can how you can build a, a system around um, um, how people interact in a in a product. Um, so, and I'm definitely seeing some some challenges in getting that up and running. But I'm wondering if if you're experiencing if it's something that you looked into and if you're experiencing any uh, any challenges starting up product that growth motions or if you've um, worked with it uh, in any way and and how. So I I don't know if you want to key it out, uh, Javid, if you have some some thoughts on that. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that. Uh, I think especially when you are starting such an initiative, the biggest challenge is the organization alignment. And I'm talking about its own company, you know, Bas because basically with product-led growth that you are trying to build a, whatever you call it, like self-driving, self-maintaining, really greased up engine that it will do its magic by itself, right? That's the idea. And it's really hard to actually build all small, small parts that will work in a coherent way, you know? And the challenge over there is to make sure that everyone is aligned, everybody has the buy-in, and everybody knows exactly what is expected from them, you know? I mean, that has been uh, challenges in one of my companies when we were actually trying to build this uh, expansion funnel, you know? Basically, we were selling our platform in different um, modules, you might say, and we wanted to build this actually expansion funnel so customers can upgrade and buy the next module. That was a dream scenario. We don't need to sell ourselves, you know, they will just buy themselves. But that basically didn't echo with everybody, didn't echo with the sales team because they were afraid of losing their bonus or their commission. That other team had different goals, you know, they didn't care about upgrade, but they were caring about some other KPI that they were trying to improve. So at the end, I think when you are starting such an initiative, it's important that you get alignment organizationally, not just in the product team, but also sales and marketing, and make sure that the individual goals and the teams are contributing to the overall company goal. So I would say, I don't have a solution to that. I'm not the expert. But that's my challenge that I faced when I was trying to build such a product-led growth in one of my jobs. So, and if anybody has a solution to that, I will be happy to hear. Yeah, if I can put my, my two sets there. the I totally agree that one of the, the big challenges is the organizational alignment. And as well, because it's difficult to be uh, product first, like that product is driving how the, the whole organization is actually moving forward. It is hard to get everybody on board with that idea and that the whole product experience is is the whole experience with the, your, your brand or your business. There is another uh, challenge that comes with it, but it's after you actually succeeded, which is did you attract the right people? Because you can start off by, by targeting one segment and, and just like Javid mentioned, his uh, a previous situation where they were targeting uh, large accounts and not small accounts. But it can happen that you initiate one of these uh, feedback loops into the company and you end up, up with a bunch of the small accounts that you wanted. And so this is something that is hard to control when you're, you're product-led and you're creating all these loops that, that self-reinforce. So you can end up in a situation where you have a lot of customers but not the ones you wanted. That's what I see. What do you think, Mirko? Yeah, 
I, I'm going to be a little specific, uh, actually. So uh, diving into the area of monetization and specifically how to price a, a product when trying to be product-led. So how do you strike the 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 right price for the, the customers, right? You might have high-tier, low-tier, mid-tier uh, premiums in your product, but how do you actually know should you set it at $5, $10, $15? Or I think... Um, that is extremely difficult. It's always been intriguing to me when I see some kind of software online and they price it at, what do I know, $49.99. How did they come up with that? And um, it's all about, in my eyes, how do you get to the perceived value of those customers and how do you maximize that? Basically, the, their willingness to pay for, for that tier. And there's, I came to the conclusion there's only one way around it, and that is tons and tons of experimentation. And um, I'm actually going to loop back to, to something that you did, Lona, um, which I think was really cool because uh, for I'm going to do a little shout out. Lona has a tool called brainstormer.online and uh, she did a post, I don't know, was it yesterday, a couple of days ago uh, on how you were going about the, the, this challenge exactly. And uh, for those who haven't read that, go to Lona's LinkedIn and, and have a read. And you did some some testing with some fake door testing and things like that. And that was really interesting to see. But uh, yeah, my conclusion is lots of experimentation before you can get to to the conclusion of what you should offer at what price. Uh, yeah, so I'll hand it over to you, Lona, what, so you can give your two cents. Yeah, thank you for for that. Um, and yeah, that it. I have been questioning how exactly to to do this a lot. Um, and then I'm testing it out on my own uh, project. So uh, so the, it's this uh, brainstormer tool, um, which is a, a really good case to test product-led growth because if you brainstorm, you brainstorm with others. So a facilitator creates a, a brainstorm and it invites people to come and brainstorm. So you have that whole dynamic of uh, like a one-to-many um relationship where where people come in try it out you see if, if they um yeah if they like if they like it uh, you put in some uh, some triggers to get their attention to maybe sign up as a user or um or or, or monetize if if that's something uh, something they, they want to do so i wanted to test that out um because it is something I completely agree with what's been said about the the biggest challenge. It's it's the organization. If the organization is not set up for it, I was just thinking what you said, Mirko, about how pricing is an experiment. Just imagining in in an in, a, in an organization that's already running, uh, like in a like marketing led or, or sales led, how at how on earth do you even get to a place where you can experiment with pricing just to get that set up? So because it requires so many experiments just changing things for a small segment for a bigger set segment and and having all the all the data coming coming back to you and uh, like uh, that intense focus on what the what the users are are doing and what uh, what the yeah what feedback you get from them so it is really it is really all about being set up to uh, to be able to to build up this um, this machine where you you constantly uh, get data and uh, and act on it and uh, and experiment with it so it yeah so the organization is the biggest challenge i think and then being um, um and then g- 
getting yourself set up to to experiment. Yeah, it's the mindset, right? So like yeah. the people like to have the control and or at least the illusion of control. So how do you take it away from people and just say that we are doing experiments? Yeah, and we will figure out in three months. So that's that's not a good news for too many stakeholders. <laughs> yeah, people like uh, like to to know exactly what is going to happen, and yeah. you just don't know if you experiment. Exactly. Um, I think that's a really insightful take on in terms of that what you published there, brainstormer. I haven't had opportunity to check it out yet, but. I will be sure to check it on your LinkedIn after this podcast. And as Merkel said, for anybody listening, be sure to go over to a LinkedIn profile. But I think what you were addressing there directly relates to the next question. So Fabio, I know you had something to post to the group. Yeah, sure. I, I wanted to to learn from you guys uh, some of the underrated, underrated ways that you understand your users, like tips from the trenches, like what's your secret weapon to understand users? Yeah, I can go. So I have one thing that uh, I actually picked up during my time at Maersk because they were really into this uh, framework called Lean Six Sigma at that time. And there's a concept called a Gemba, which in Japanese, Javid, that you might know, it means the, the real place, um, which basically means that you put yourself in the place where the things are happening. And it was usually... I mean, it was, um, Previously used for manufacturing, so you would go down to the plant and you will see what's happening for you to optimize. So I kind of stole that for uh, understanding uh, the the customers. And one good example was that when I started in Pineo a month and a half ago, I was started uh, attending a couple of customer interviews online, and then I decided to do a gimba out at the customer's location. So I went there and sat next to them and just. Uh, told them to show them their day and the tool, a day in their life, basically, as uh, as you've seen probably a lot of times on YouTube. And uh, I, I got so many insights uh, because people feel comfortable. They're in their home, quote unquote, and uh, you're not, they don't feel intrigued and you're, you're kind of on their turf and they get to show how they're working. So I think that's really an, an underrated way of understanding your customer. What do you think, Chavit? Yeah, I do agree. I mean, the observation is the best way to learn from them. I mean, because if we ask them direct questions and the human psychology doesn't let them actually speak the truth. It's not like they are lying on purpose, but they are just talking about the optimum situation. But then if you go there and same for me, I'm working in the warehouse and depot department. So I'm building the solutions for the people who work in warehouse for Maersk. It's a different environment over there between those aisles and what they need to do and how they need to do it. So just go and observe them in their place and you know put yourself in their shoes, as the saying says. So try to learn as much as you can. That would be my two cents. Fabi, I don't know which department you are working for, Mersk. So let's have a lunch afterwards. You know, so it's a good introduction also. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I can maybe uh, answer the question as well. Um, so I agree with everything, basically. The best way to uh, understand users is to uh, visit them, spend time with them, and also get them get the low-stakes interactions. Because if you talk to uh, 
to customers and they're and they're angry about something if there's a problem then it's difficult then you you spend time on resolving that problem and talking about that but just be having like casual talks it's the best way to get to get to know them and see what do they care about what's important for them and that's a yeah principles as as we talked about that go into into decision making when you know okay they they care about this and this and this so it also helps the the prioritization in the end but i think it that's really there's really no easy way it's it's getting to know the users is uh, is hard work and uh, and just uh, getting yourself in there and uh, sometimes being a bit a bit pushy to get get to get to actually be there where they are so uh, yeah what do you think fabio do you have some uh, some uh, other thoughts about it yeah i think i have an add on to to mirko's like uh, gemba is is really the not the gold standard but like it's a pretty good technique and i think so far in in my life all the what has worked pretty well is to be really really active in listening and and probing more questions to to your users in many situations they have a problem that they don't have anybody to discuss it with and then when you show real real interest in it and in trying to solve it they get so fired up and they want to share everything about it i think when that happens that that means you you hit jackpot like you you broke a huge barrier with them and you're going to be able to extract a lot of knowledge from them but there is a dark side to that which is you can't rely only on that because there are also other users who might see it differently so there are there are two edges there you have to be careful i think some really great points there and i think bringing it back to something that javit said is that sometimes words don't always align with the actions or the way in which they behave and i think fabio you're touching on it there that you could read into what one person's saying when the the majority is probably a different perspective so how is that something you deal with in understanding users? I think so. I mean, we, in Pineo, for example, we uh, have a tool called Amplitude, and there are other tools out there, Mixpanel and others, where basically you collect uh, feedback on how the system is being used instead of asking the users. And that gives exactly that insight to a large degree because you can also have a lot of data at the same time of course no you don't know what they're thinking but you can see their actions they're very valuable yes sometimes you will you will hear a pr about a problem uh, again and again and again every day for uh, several weeks and you uh, you get to a point where okay this is super important and then when you look at the data it's uh, it's a very very small subset that has the problem and it doesn't mean it's that important to to solve it it, it can still be important but uh, but there's really it's yeah data is just such a great way to 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 pair up all these um yeah all these thoughts you hear from from the customers about the product so at this stage i know that we've addressed everybody's question does anybody have anything else you'd like to ask the panel or anything further to add? No. In which case, I'd like to thank you all for some amazing contributions. If you'd like to join on a future podcast episode, please approach me on LinkedIn or drop me an email at connor.leyland at evolution 
nordics.com. I'll see you all soon.